The Why Me Project, an exclusive presentation of Faith Strong Today. Episode number... 209. No, dos, dos dies? Is that 210? 210. I'm not... My Espanore is not good. Uh, yeah, episode number 210. And uh, I think, Holly, we kick it off with this. Carol, who uh, sends in a message, uh, whymeproject at outlook.com. You guys have amazing guests each and every week. Have you ever thought about having Heather Thompson Day on? She is an amazing woman. No pressure. <laughs> I want some pressure felt, on that. I felt pressure. <laughs> I some pressure there. I felt pressure. Your wish is our command. <laughs> so without further ado, I was going to say uh, Heather Day, but then there's a doctor and you if, yes. you, if you are a doctor, you deserve to be said doctor. So congratulations on that, by the way. You know what? Mm. I appreciate that. I actually don't make my students say doctor because I, I found for some of them, it creates just distance. Mm. And so I am very fine. Whatever makes you feel most comfortable with me. That's I'm a communication person. So whatever makes the audience feel comfortable is what I'm good going with. All right. right. Well, we are going to ask so many questions, very excited. But uh, the first one, which we always ask, it's a skill testing question, you know, the answer to, and it's who are you and where did you come from? Who am I? Well, is that like, is that an easy question? That's like a really heavy, you just start people with that. Who are you? Man, that's deep. (laughs) Uh, I guess the answer for me is always to say I'm a teacher. I I Mm. feel like at the core of my ministry and just who I am is, is teaching and education and young people. So I am a college professor. I teach communication at Colorado Christian university, and I came from, um, a long line of, of educators and, Michigan specifically. I lived in Berrien Springs, Michigan, which is a tiny two stoplight town for most of my life. And when I say most, I mean like all, cause I just left there two years ago <laughs> to come to Denver. What was it like growing up in a small town? I can imagine safety, freedom, running around, only coming home <laughs> at the end of the day, once the, you know, the streetlights turn on. <laughs> yeah, it was all of those things. It was all of those things. And I think that it's really shaped It's been helpful because I think my worldview and just a lot of how I see things has been shaped by growing up in this small town environment where everybody knows everybody Mm -hmm. and just kind of assuming we're all the same. And I've really learned that that is not true and that I cannot place my, um, my background onto everybody else when I enter situations. It's interesting to me because if you ever talk to a, a pastor's kid, it was always like, there's pressure for ministry. Was there? And I also feel like when it comes to teachers, did you feel that there was pressure for you to then become a teacher? So my dad was actually a pastor. What I meant by educators is just that my, my oh, Nana had, this is actually a really cool story. Let's talk about this. It kind of yes. fits into where I came from. So my Nana was a black woman who raised She had 10 children in the inner city of Boston as a single mom. Oh, wow. And her one goal was to have a college degree. And just as a single mom and a black woman in during the civil rights movement, that was not going to be feasible or possible for her. So what she did was she made sure that every single one of her children had a college degree. Every single one of my aunts and uncles 
are college educated. My Nana then once all her kids were grown, decided to do something for herself. And she was accepted into Harvard at the age of 70, where she studied education. And so that's what I mean when I say like a long line of educators, we just have like a lot of my aunts are teachers or superintendents or worked in the school system. And so, yeah, I think that has impacted me, but more so once I already chose it, I looked for those links to confirm my decision. It Mm -hmm. definitely didn't play into the decision that I made. Yeah. Your Nana is my hero. And I want to mine be like too. Her when I grow up. <laughs> yeah, mine too. And That's you know, incredible. that, that story of her, as I was going through my PhD program, there were so many times I just felt like I am not these people. I did not at all feel when I would sit down with my chair, he was just a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. And I just felt like, man, that is so not me. And I, there were so many days I cried on my living room floor, but then I would think of my Nana at 70 across the Harvard promenade. And I'm like, I can do this. There's so much into a communications degree. And one thing in a world of communication and uh, online and social media and all this stuff, we actually, as a society suck at communicating. (laughs) So as a, as a communications teacher, what are, what are you teaching and uh, what can I learn from you? Yeah, here's the number one thing. And you've just kind of said it. So the first thing I would say is most people, if you were to pass out a survey, most people say that they are competent communicators. The average person is totally incompetent when it comes mm-hmm. to their communication. And the reason is this good communicators always know that it's always about the listener. Most people don't view communication that way. They view it about the message communicators. Let's put it this way. Most people will spend all of their energy trying to drag a person kick. I'm talking about politics now, trying to drag a person kicking and screaming over to their message. Communicators say, no, I'm going to take this message and I'm going to figure out how I can bring it to this person. And if I have to change it, I'll change it. So it fits the person and it makes sense and it's applicable to them. So that's what we teach people in communication. I tell them communication people are the people you hire when you're trying to figure out how do I build a relationship between the organization that I'm representing and the target market that that organization is trying to reach. Mm -hmm. You bring in a really great communicator. Yeah. I love that so much. And it's so true. So much is lost in translation, but you're speaking the same language, just completely differently. Because people also aren't so good about the second part of communication, not just with the talking, but about the listening, not just waiting to, you know, rebuttal some kind of answer. Right. I think I just read a study the other day that said um, only 10% of people are effective listeners. Which was very like overwhelming. <laughs> I, I can't remember where I, where it was from. So don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure that's what I read. Only 10% of people are effective listeners. And I was like, wow, that's, that's not good. <laughs> no. <laughs> has the, um, has your degree in communications, has that morphed over time though? Because going into it to then where we are over the last few, it seems like we're mm. ever evolving. Uh, what does that look like? That's a really great question. I think, well, I teach social media. So we've added these digital components of our communication and everybody who sends a text message knows this. I actually am of the belief that we can have really healthy, robust, meaningful communication digitally. Hmm. Um, And I think we did this for a long time, like maybe with letters. um, But I think the, the average number of texts that get sent out a day, like it's impo- it's like 80 something texts a day. It's impossible to say that those things aren't meaningful. 
Right. So it might take more time to build relational intimacy, but I think that social media has absolutely changed the way we communicate. And I think it's also removed a lot of the gatekeepers for communication. And that's important, right? As a woman, as a Christian, I think there was a time that there might not have been a space for me to just say what I want to say or talk about my views. And because of social media, I'm able to do that. I can go around some of the gatekeepers who would have said to me like, oh, we're not interested in your perspective or your worldview. And I can just speak directly to my audience. And I think that that's really fascinating. It's something I couldn't have even fully fathomed when I was actually getting my, when I would have been a a freshman or a sophomore in college and I was trying so hard to get a book deal, I couldn't have fathomed being able to just write and have people read it. Like without the publisher, I can just write now and people are impacted by that. That's a beautiful thing for any content creator. Absolutely. And it's interesting too how thanks to social media, thanks to blogging and, you know, influencers, now there are so many more voices out there, but it can get noisy with all the voices out there. Uh, And not all the message are going to be messages that are life-giving or encouraging, So there's that flip side of it as well. What are some of the things that you've been able to use to navigate to, you know, turn down some of those negative voices and and find more channels to be encouraged with the communication digitally? Yeah, I'm really big into meditation. I'm really big into devotion and and worship. And so I, a rule that I have for myself is I will not, if, if you ever see me online, it is only because I have spent time in worship first. Hmm. It's, I will never log online if I haven't first spent time in my Bible or in the with the, there's so many, like you said, there's so many voices. So yeah. how do I know even what mine is? How do I know what I really think or believe if I'm not taking that time to just kind of let all that stuff chill out? I try to not even get online. I, I have hours of operation that I'm allowed to check. And I posted this the other day and somebody was like, that's a long time for you to be online. I am not on all those hours, <laughs> but I am allowed to check my own um, social media accounts between nine and nine. Hmm. And I try not to get on after nine o'clock at night and not before nine o'clock in the morning. Good for you. I love Good those boundaries you. because I do the Tuesday scrolling where I'm like, what's terrible yeah. today? Hashtag COVID news, hashtag, because that's like the easiest thing to find as you're scrolling and just trying to mentally check out of life. But to set those boundaries uh, is so healthy and not a lot of people do that. And we should, everybody listening, you should set boundaries for yourself. It's super important because we know, I mean, at this point, there's no excuse. Everybody watched the social dilemma, right? Became a social media scientist and was like, shut it down, burn it to the ground. I mean, so many people made public announcements. I am logging off everything. I saw the social dilemma. Um, I think that that is, it is healthy to be aware of the dangers. Personally, I will never shut down my social media accounts. I think you can take a hiatus, but I would never shut them down just because of the opportunity that we get by using them. I think it's incredible. Mm-hmm. It can be its own mission. Can, field. We, can we have a healthy relationship with social media though? I feel like it's like an all, I feel like it's an all or nothing kind of thing. I feel like you can have a healthy relationship with it. Um, I, I think you have to have boundaries and like, so if you guys have read atomic habits, something he talks about in there is like, he would have his secretary change his password, um, on Thursday afternoon. So he wasn't able to log in all weekend so that he was really present with his family over the weekend. And then she would change Mm. the password back and send it to him on Monday. There is, I mean, we absolutely, I think can take control. It's just, most of us don't want to, and it's hard. I mean, don't, I won't 
I will not minimize the fact that these are designed to be addictive. So we have to be aware of that. I want to talk about the faith side of things. Cause you said that dad was a pastor. Was, was faith kind of your thing from the beginning or as Holly always says, like the, the head to heart, when did it actually become your own? That's a really good question. I would say it did not become my own until I was 22 years old. And I can remember the moment um, that I was just crying. I had just called off my engagement. I was supposed to be married in two months and I'm mm. crying in my room. And I just had this moment where I said to God, I am tired of asking you to follow me where I am going. And I'd mm. like to follow you where you are going. And I just surrendered my life to him in that moment at 22 years old. And it was the best decision I've ever made. And I look back on the trajectory of my life in the last 12 years. And I am positive the things that I've been able to experience now are only because of that decision I made at 22 years old. But I grew up in a faith environment. I've always known God. I've never had like this falling away moment, but I would say it wasn't mine until I was 22. Mm-hmm. We're hearing a lot now just in uh, Christian culture about people deconstructing their faith. And right. that's become quite public. A lot of well-known, you know, celebrity Christians. I hate to use that term, but that's kind of what it, it is. It's their job. Um, and now they're deconstructing their faith. What are your thoughts on on that process and, you know, really trying to define what is it that you believe? Yeah, I think it's very healthy to look at I mean, this is like communication. We have a theory called standpoint theory. And it says, if you ever want to understand any movement or organization, you do that by looking and talking to the most marginalized people of that organization or movement. For example, my workplace, people who have a high stake in the organization are getting the most reward. So you Mm. might turn a blind eye to what is happening perhaps to somebody who's in the real services, or let's use church. For example, if you want to understand the actual issues with church, you do that not by talking to the kids who are always up front singing hallelujah, but the kids who are saying, I don't want to be here anymore. The kids who are saying to you, I don't want to be here anymore, have the most honest perspective because they're not, they're not getting anything from this system. And so they'll tell you, here's what I see that's wrong. And I think that's healthy to have. And especially if this is about, if we are actually wanting to seek and save that, which was lost, why would we not give time and listening ear to the voices of people who are saying this system has hurt me and here's how. I think that's a really healthy process to go through. I would hope that we go back to the reconstruction because I'm telling you, Jesus Christ is the best decision I've ever made. And I believe Mm. the church actually can be visibly, God is invisible because he's best seen through his people. God can't be seen in the world. It's because the church is no longer allowing him to be visible as a people. So we should really work on that. And if God himself exists within community, who are we to ever think I got this on my own? Get out of here. (laughs) You, I have, my, my students will say to me all the time, especially since COVID, right? They'll say like, I don't need church anymore because I can listen to the greatest speaker, the greatest order at home in my underpants. And that is true, Right but there is no app for relationship. Church should never be a service. It should be people that I'm going through life with. And because I have certain wise counsel in my corner, I have people who can give me advice on the decisions and choices that I'm making. That should be the function of the church. We should be doing life together. So you're telling me that the church isn't just four walls and a roof? (laughs) I don't think so. I really, you know, and you know, there's so much in there. There's so much in scripture. Christ, God never wanted that. No. 
right? Mm-hmm. David begs, let me build you. And he says, no, no, no. I want to be in a tent where I can move about with my people. God wants to move about with his people. Mm-hmm. Over this last year, year and a half, there's this, it's going to be a surprise to you. There's this thing called COVID and, it, and it's really rocked not only Canada and the US, but the world. And it seems like we are now trapped and we're stuck and we're waiting for that moment. And along comes this, uh, it's not your turn. What to do when you're waiting for a breakthrough? Did you plan that? Is that how you, you set it up when you decided to write <laughs> she just this? knew COVID was happening. <laughs> I could never. And my publisher has said that. They have said like, wow, what a time for this book to be coming out. Hmm. I could never plan that. I wrote the book um, because I went through this really long period where I had felt like I had done everything right. I felt like I had made all the right choices as far as my education. I never took a summer off with school. I was in school from 2005 till I finished with my PhD, I think in like 2017, no summers off. I did the work and then I couldn't get a job. I was adjuncting at like five different universities. I could not get hired full-time. It was incredibly embarrassing to be standing up in front of a classroom, pretending like, you know, I have this degree and I'm teaching students. I am, I am molding and shaping young minds. And I had no, like I, my card was getting declined at Walmart, right? Mm -hmm. Like I had nothing. And I just remember being like, God, this feels like such a trick. Cause I feel locked in the steps that you told me to take. And I am in deep poverty right now. And my, like so bad, my sister was leaving diapers on my doorstep and then pretending that she didn't do it. Right. (laughs) And at the same time, one of my best friends calls me and she says, Heather, you're not going to believe it. And I was like, what? And she's like, I just got hired at NASA. That's great. (laughs) Like I was choking. I was like, I am so happy for you. And I was happy for her, but I was incredibly sad for myself. And I had this moment where I felt like the Holy spirit whispered in my ear, Heather, it's not your turn, but Hmm. it's hers cheer for her, join in her joy. It's just not your turn right now. And so I would repeat that to myself throughout the next seven years. It's not your turn. It's theirs. And I came to this point where I realized who we are when it's not our turn is more important than who we will be when it is Mm. because we need integrity. And I think it's hard to build integrity when it is your turn. Everybody turns the podcast button on for thousands of listeners. That doesn't take integrity. That doesn't take character. Everybody stands on the stage for thousands of people applauding you. I think God is looking for a generation of people who are willing to do the work without the reward because it's about the work. Because I actually just believe this thing. It's not that I'm getting something from it. It's that it gives me everything to just be a part of this movement. And yeah, so I want to encourage people that if it's not your turn, that's okay right? And who can you support because it's their turn? Like, let's not let jealousy hinder our own prayers. How can we join in other people's joy and just wait for our turn to come? Well, especially in a day and age where we have social media and we have that way that people are are broadcasting their highlights, not their lowlights. So it seems like everyone else, it's their turn, it's their turn, and it's never going to be mine. And I know that feeling and I resonate with you. What <laughs> I, I literally, there was this point where I went online. There's like places online. I write about this in the book where you can write an email to God. I don't know whose email address or inbox it goes to, <laughs> but I wrote this letter to God and I like, it just felt very therapeutic to send all of my grievances to him. Um, yeah, I know what it feels like to feel overlooked and underappreciated. And, but you know what? So I had a friend, I went to lunch with a friend, her name is Tassiana. And she said to me, 
Heather, like stop thinking that your anointing starts when you get to like this metaphorical there life starts right here. And she said, your anointing begins the day you believe you have one. And I, I, my, I had goosebumps when she said that. Mm -hmm. And I was walking over across campus to go teach a class. I had probably five students in the class and there, it was after lunch, their heads were all down on their desks. Nobody really was wanting to be there. And usually I think I would have walked in a room like that and just said, okay, let me just, let me just mail it in. I'm just going to do the bare minimum, make sure I check the box and I'm going to let them go. And I didn't because I had just had lunch with Tassiana who said my anointing begins the day I believe I have one. And so I decided, you know what, I'm going to teach this class. Like I'm meant to be here. Hmm. I'm going to give this lecture as if it is the greatest thing I will ever do with my entire life. And so I did. And I watched as their heads picked up. And then after class, this girl came to my office and she said, Hey, I just want to thank you because something I had said gave her the answer to something she'd been praying about. I think after graduation Oh wow! and she was like, I just want to thank you. And I thought, wow, she feels like God just answered her prayer all because I did my job. Hmm. And what if I had mailed it in? Then she would have went on saying, oh, well, God hasn't answered me or I haven't, I've been praying on this thing. And it just made me realize, oh, every moment matters. And if we start living our life as if it matters and as if we're supposed to be here and I walk into every classroom or room or conversation saying, no, this is the most important thing I'm going to do with my life. It changes the outcome of those situations. And then I watched as like my life started to change. It took years. I'm not, I don't want anyone to, oh, let me live like this for a week. I mean, I'm talking years (laughs) later and I've seen a lot of fruit. I appreciate that you're honest that it took years because you could have just went with the highlights and yeah. overnight success <laughs> over here. Yeah. But it, it might be a dumb question, but it, it, there are these times that we just feel so stuck. We're waiting for that breakthrough. And I know the simple answer is we need to pray, but how long do we wait? Because there are times that I just feel like, okay, God, if you're not going to tell me then obviously this isn't it. And I might as well just give up. Yeah. Johnny, how long did Moses wait? Year one goes by year two, year three, year four. How long does it take for our hope to die? Year five, year six, year seven, year eight, year nine, 80 years. So let's be real, (laughs) right? Like, and that's the beauty I think of scripture is there are stories we flip a page and it's like deliverance promised land. No, there are 80 years. Joseph is in a pit, right? And it's 17 years until he's in a palace, 17 years. Was Joseph any less anointed in the pit than in the palace? No. That's why it's important to just start living as if it matters now, even in the pit. And and I think something beautiful happens, at least for me, it did. I won't say it for everybody else, but there's this point just came for me where I realized it doesn't matter. Like if the, if the biggest thing I ever do with my life is just teach a really great class, I'm happy with that. It's actually going to make me cry. Like what an honor, what an honor to just know that I've lived a life of integrity in my small space that nobody else cared about. I think that takes even more integrity to live a life that matters when nobody cares. If you go home, that's a beautiful thing to be a part of. And I just think that should be the goal is to do the work and to do the inner work in ourselves so that when we die, we can say, God can say, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's interesting. And Holly, I've, I've, we've talked about this analogy a number of times that uh, you have two or three unique conversations a day with somebody that you've never had a chance to talk to before. So in a lifespan of 82 years, that's 60 to 80,000 people. So on the day you die, if God were to bring those people in front of you, a football stadium full of people, and they came down one by one, what would they say? What impact would you have on their life? I love that. 
I love that. There, there's so many opportunities for us. And, and as you say, you know, we're, we're waiting for that breakthrough, but it's trying to find the, the clap and be joyous for the people around you who are going through that. Yeah. And here's what, so I just read in, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the book. It's make it up. We'll Rico. never know. Okay. It's by <laughs> David Rico. I know that I think it's called learning to trust. Um, but he says that the way we actually build trust as human beings is to join in other people's joy. Hmm. And that when you have relationships where you're like, I don't, something, I just don't trust them. It's because you've seen them not join in your joy. We're living in a time where most millennials, when you ask millennials, how many people do you feel like truly know you? The average answer is zero. Hmm. And it's not just millennials, more baby boomers die of suicide today than car accidents. Simon Sinek says this, he says, we don't kill ourselves because we're like not successful. We kill ourselves because we're lonely. We are living in an incredibly lonely time and generation, and it's never been more important to let somebody have trust in you. And so maybe you don't have like five people who you trust, but can you be that person for five people? We've got to start flipping the script. And it, there's this really great theory that's called the law of the few. And the law of the few says 80% of crimes are committed by 20% of criminals. 80% of the work on average of any organization is done by 20% of employees. We don't need a lot of people. We need a few really good people to make a decision to start living for integrity and let's see what happens. That really seems to be a theme in general about being faithful with the little. Um, I saw a post and was talking about if you want to go through a book you know, and maybe you're not a huge reader. If you just take it a little bit at a time, by the end of the year, you'll have gone through dozens of books, which seems yeah. impossible in January 1. But by dedicating 20, you know, 20 pages a day, you've accomplished so much more. It's those little steps, those baby things and being faithful yeah. when no one's watching. And so I love that you are so passionate about this because we can do so much while we're just waiting. And, and yeah. we can live well while we're waiting. Plus, there's less pressure, less eyeballs on us. <laughs> yes. What a great place for God to give us all to learn is when nobody cares if you mess up. In the, the hills and valleys of life, we, we ask God that question. Why me? Why am I put into this situation? Why are you using me in this way? Or why can't whatever that may be? Can you think of a why me moment for your life? I feel like I have, I'm a why me person. I was a why me person. So I watched this Ted talk and, and, and let me, this is all going to come back full circle. I promise <laughs> I'm going to land this plane. I watched this Ted talk and she was talking about, she's a professor at Boulder, Natasha Yurik, I think it's her name. And she was talking about when we focus on why it actually doesn't create a lot of change. It is better to focus on what. So when we say, why God is this happening to me? We, people who ask that question more end up in a, a more depressed state, like five years down the line, as opposed to what can I do while I'm in this state to get, take me to X, Y, and Z. Those people are the people who tend to be more optimistic and positive about their situation. So I ask, I, you know what I realized after I watched her TED talk, I just watched it two months ago and I sh I've shown it to every single class I've taught ever since then, because I realized the only time I ask why is to God. I'm a, I'm a what person in like my job and my life and my marriage and my relationships. But with God, I, I do a lot of why I don't know why that <laughs> is, uh, but I'm trying to change it. I'm trying to start saying, okay, what can I do in this space that would be useful for my time that I'm here? I, and I, I mean, I've told you some stories about, you know, just 
there, there was this time, um, I went to is my daughter's first birthday and I wanted to be a really good mom. And so I wanted to, um, just Pinterest mom, like make everything myself and have a really great menu and have people over. And I went and I bought all the groceries and I realized I forgot paper party plates. Mm -hmm. And so I went back and I went to buy my paper party plates and my card got declined. And I can tell you the entire, I didn't have enough money. It is what are p- plates, $2 and 50 cents. I didn't have $2 and 50 cents. And I'm driving home with my husband total in silence in the car. And definitely I felt like, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me when I feel like I've been so faithful, mm. but you know what, here's, here's what I've come to. Um, I re- if there was ever a time I couldn't pay my mortgage, I picked up the phone and I called my mom. And they paid it. Right. And I've, I do a lot of service in, in homeless shelters because my best friend's dad was homeless. So I'm very passionate about that population, but I realized in the homeless shelters, oh, like these are just people who didn't have a call. And so I think even that time where my card's getting declined on paper plates, it's helped me realize that so much of my life is like a privilege of the relationships that I always had to turn to, like my sister bringing diapers to my doorstep. And so then how can I be that for other people? it matters. And I know the sting and the shame of like, just feeling totally like a loser. I know what that feels like. And so how, what can I do to help somebody else who's in that situation? I think because I've been in it and I know the tears that you cry and I know the why God feeling, it makes me much more empathetic to watch and to pay attention to people who I'm like, "Mm, something doesn't look right. Let me, nah, they said they're fine, but something doesn't seem fine. Let me pull them aside. And so even in our, you know, my goal is to be a whole person. I say, I want to be a whole person. And even in our misery, we're still whole because we can still be wholly connected to God and wholly connected to each other. Success or not success money in my account or declined, even like even bad things in some ways make me more whole because I'm, I, I wholly am able to connect to God in those moments. And I'm wholly able to grab my husband's hand and say, I don't know how we're going to get through this, but we'll get through it together. And so even in, it's easy for me to say, I guess now, cause I'm out of that part of my life, but I know what it feels like to be in it. And I just want people to know, hang on, mm-hmm. hang on. It's uh, it's encouraging when you get to hear people's stories, you know, you were, it, things didn't seem great, but now you're in a place where you can positively impact people. You've got a book coming out in a minute. And I'm curious to know for you with this book that's coming out, what are you hoping people will get from it? And what are some of those next steps for you? You know, I want people to get hope back. I think hope, sometimes we make people feel like hope is a dirty word. Even when I posted about the book, I I mean, I had lots of good feedback, but of course I pay attention to the one person that comments, (laughs) you know, and people are like, but sometimes your turn is never going to come. And I just, I mean, this is, I am the annoyingly optimistic friend. I will own that. I will be your friend that will always tell you like, Hey, I just want to believe it for you. If you can't believe it right now, but that's because hope is powerful and hope for me is what got me to the next day. And then year. Right. And so I think what I want is for people to just feel like it's okay to hope. And there's a Bible verse that says hope deferred makes the heart sick. I know that feeling where Mm -hmm. hope is even painful, but how do we pick it up again? Because I think it changes the way we engage with our everyday lives when we're hopeful 
It's not your turn. What to do while waiting for your breakthrough coming out uh, June the 29th. Mark it down on your calendar. Dr. Heather Thompson Day uh, at Heather T. Day on Twitter at Heather Thompson Day on the Insta. Uh, shout out to Carol sending us a message <laughs> saying we got to talk to Heather. Thank goodness she sent it. Heather, yes. this has been amazing. Thank you so very much. Thank you guys for having me. What a joy. Big shout out to uh, Dr. Heather for taking some time. My goodness. Uh, I, I feel energized. I want to go and give people COVID hugs, Holly. <laughs> I know. I know. I love what she had to say about communication. And I love that she's been there and she's just doing whatever she can to encourage those who might feel like, I don't really know. I'm in the season of waiting. It's not my turn yet. I, I don't know. And they're losing hope. And that's been a theme here. Don't lose hope. Yeah, I've always heard the, the, uh, the saying, with them, what's in it for me? And mm -hmm. I really would love to change that and how can we help others so uh quite the encouragement again shout out to uh, carol for sending us that email you can email us you can facebook you can twitter you can instagram download apple Podcasts, uh, spotify twitter <laughs> we'd love to communicate with you exactly also you can go to faithstrongtoday.com for more <laughs>